Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast for darn sure. The 221st edition of the program, Rich Kimball here, along with Carrie Haskell. And we're brought to you each week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. A couple of fine conversations this afternoon, today, morning, whenever you happen to be listening. We're recording it in the afternoon, so I'm thinking it's afternoon. It's always afternoon around here. Uh, Later on in the program, we'll talk with journalist Jason Reed about his new book, Rise of the Black Quarterback. But up first, a terrific conversation with writer-director Ron Shelton, responsible for some of the best sports movies, hey, some of the best movies of the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Bull Durham, Tin Cup, White Men Can't Jump, uh, other films like Blaze and Cobb. Very, very talented guy, former minor league baseball player as well, who put that knowledge into his script for Bull Durham, which came out 34 years ago. And Ron Shelton talks about it all in a brand new book called The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham. We had a chance to talk with Ron about the book and the film. I read the whole book, and uh, it was fantastic. Of course, I love the movie, but uh, the book is such a fascinating story. And Bull Durham was such an unlikely hit, a first-time director, no, at the time, real proven box office stars. It was a sports movie. It was a sports movie without the big game or the big hit. And as you point out, it didn't really even have a third act. Yeah, and, you know, the two characters you're following, Crash Davis and Nuke Lelouch, Kevin Costner and Tim Robbins, they aren't even with the team at the end of the movie, and we have no idea what happened to the team. So not only is there no big game, there's not even a team. <laughs> now, you, you've said you're not a guy who spends a lot of time looking backwards, but but uh, you mentioned that it was an incident uh, in Durham for the 30th anniversary when you met a couple of youngsters, and that helped inspire you to write this book. I did. That was about four years ago, and uh, they had Bull Durham Night, and it was a big deal because – the whole town credits the movie with turning it around from a dumpy little boarded up A-ball town to a really happening place in AAA ballpark. And uh, I was asked by a couple, a couple said, I, we moved to Durham because of the movie, which seemed a little crazy to me. And could, would you mind taking a picture with us and our two boys? And I said, of course, this was before the game. So as I'm posing, I turn to the 10 year old and I say, what's your name? He said, my name's Crash. And I looked at his younger brother and says, I'm afraid to ask. And he said, yep, I'm Nuke. <laughs> and I thought, I better write a book because this, this movie's not going away. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's talk about your backstory because you include that in, in the book as well. You grew up in a very strict religious family, uh, no TV, no movies, and it was only the chance to see hometown hero Eddie Matthews and I think game four of the 57 World Series that led your family to get your first television. Yeah, I, I don't think my family was that strict. It was, it was a very old-fashioned, church-going family. It was also very open-minded about the arts. It was a family that fought for civil rights uh, and minority rights in every way. So, you know, Republicans used to be different. And um, that was a 
it was a it was the Republican Party I grew up with, to be honest, um, which is unrecognizable at the moment. Right. But it was also a, a loving family. But yeah, it was very old fashioned. No TV, uh, no no drinking, no cursing. Um, and then when Eddie Matthews, it's detailed in the book. Eddie Matthews, we skipped church to watch the fourth game of the World Series, and Eddie Matthews hit a home run uh, to win the game for the Braves. We went on to win the World Series, and I just noticed my father started going going to church a little less after Eddie <laughs> you know, liberated us. Uh, as a young man, once you started watching movies, you mentioned in the book that The Hustler was one of your favorites. I just, who could imagine, as you sat in a movie theater as a young guy watching The Hustler, that one day you'd have a chance to direct Paul Newman? Never. Uh, I was never intended to be even a writer, but after baseball, um, I just was writing and trying to sell short stories and I love movies and just kept writing screenplays at night, trying to figure it out. Never took a class, never went to film school and, um, you know, kicked the doors down <laughs> um, finally and um, discovered that the whole, I loved everything about it. I love working with actors. I love directing. And uh, I think my preparation as a professional athlete was great. Uh, was great preparation and applied to everything. You know, you've got to be prepared. You got to not get too high on a good day, not to get low on a bad day. And um, I, I think playing all those bus rides helped me as a director. Now you mentioned that uh, as a, as a student athlete in college, that's when you first had the realization that most sports movies just weren't that good and, and didn't get the sports part right. That was the big thing. Uh, every sports movie seems to end with a grand slam in the bottom of the ninth to win a World Series or a half-court hook shot, you know, at the NBA Finals or something, you know, Hail Mary that gets caught. We know that those are aberrant. Those are rare, rare things, and they never rarely happen in a big game anyway. They usually happen in the third game of the season uh, of two high schools in Nebraska. So, um that was the first thing. The second thing was that the actor actors were never very good athletes. And also they never get sports movies don't get the detail and the nuance. They're all like made by people who are fans, but not actually players. Uh, you got signed by the Orioles and joined their organization. I, I feel like Ron, we could do a whole show just on Joe Altabelli and Steve Dalkowski. Yeah. I um, talk about them a lot in the book. Uh, Joe was a career triple-A player who had a cup of coffee in the big leagues and was starting all over as a manager in his late 30s um, when I signed. I was on his first team in the Appalachian League out of California. I went to Bluefield, West Virginia. And then through my career in the minors, I kind of kept moving up with Joe, who later managed a World Series championship mm-hmm. Baltimore team. But when we got to AAA, along the way, I was learning Steve Dalkowski stories because Dalkowski is a legendary pitcher in the minor leagues who never got to the majors. Um, most say the hardest thrower who ever lived. And also, sadly, an alcoholic from New Britain, Connecticut, by the way, and uh, ended up working as a migrant farm worker. I mean, really sad story. And I wrote many, many articles about him. But um, he ended up rooming when 10 years to get to AAA, and they roomed him with Joe Altabelli so that Joe would mature him. And I said, Joe, what was it like? And he said, I never saw him all year. I roomed with his suitcase, which is a famous line. <laughs> but that was the idea for the new crash relationship. 
there was a little Steve Dalkowski in 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 there, but also a little bit of uh, a guy that you played with in the Orioles system, Mike Ferraro, right? Mike Ferraro, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I played with Mike. I wasn't close to Mike, but I had great admiration for Mike. He was a upstate New York guy, but he he was an All Star third baseman many years in the International League AAA. Is insurance for the major league third baseman, mm-hmm. whether it was Brooks Robinson or Greg Nettles or whoever. And it was really unfair to him that he, 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 instead of being on a big league roster, he was insurance. <laughs> and um, he's not like Crash Davis exactly, but I knew a lot of guys that I, whose professionalism I really admired, like Mike. We're talking with Ron Shelton. His book is called The Church of Baseball, of the Making of, of uh, Bull Durham. You'd had some success as a writer with, uh, I think, a, an underappreciated film, Under Fire. I uh, love the movie. We've had Joanna Cassidy on the show. That was a terrific film. Thank you, and it was my film school because I got to direct second unit and be on the, all stages of planning and editing. And uh, that, was, that was film school in one movie, and uh, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm very proud of that movie. Now, they, they always say, write what you know, and you, you certainly knew the life of a minor leaguer. When it came to Bull Durham, there's so many wonderful stories in the book. I, I loved your pitch to Tom Mount for the film that you encapsulated in just five words. Lysistrata in the minor leagues. That was my pitch. <laughs> and that was enough to hook him. Tom was the only guy that knew that Lysistrata was a legendary Greek played by Aristophanes. It was a satire, women withholding their sexual favors from the men until they stopped going to war, which becomes kind of a gag in the middle of the second act of my story. <laughs> and, he, and he owned the pieces of minor league teams. And so he knew the infield fly rule in Greek, in Greek comedy. So I, that's a rare bird in, in Hollywood. We learn in the book that there was a real Lawrence Crash Davis, and it sounds like he was really a terrific person. I got the name from Crash Davis out of an old Carolina League record book. And I noticed he hit for some guy. I just thought Crash Davis was the best name. I, you know, I wish it was my name. Right now, I wish it was my name. And <laughs> Hey, Crash, get over here, you know. And he had 50 doubles in and, and 1947. And I assumed he was long gone because nobody lives in the town. They end their minor league career. I mean, you know, I, I'm not, I don't live in Rochester. Um, you go home or wherever your new home is. And... Uh, the day before we started shooting, he basically called and said, hi, this is Crash Davis. What are you making a movie about me for? Because his daughters and granddaughters had seen a Kevin Costner movie written about in the paper about to be shot. So he came to the set, let me use his name, and we became friends. I later put him in Cobb. He played the uh, yellow lion as Wahoo Sam Crawford, right. I think. <laughs> and there was a real Ebby Calvin, but he, he was a LaRouche. He was a waiter at a, a Radisson in South Car- in Columbia, South Carolina. And I just stole his name and changed LaRouche to Lelouch. <laughs> and you explained <laughs> that uh, Annie is really uh, an amalgamation of but a number of women you knew in the 60s that had gone on their own spiritual journeys. Yeah, I mean, mostly she's a work of the imagination, but... You know, in the 60s where everybody, men and women, were on searching and worshiping all the religions, looking for one that worked, um, and trying, you know, crystals and Eastern religion and reading Alan Watts and all that. Now it's 20 years later. What are these people doing? 
Um, and uh, I have affection for that group of people because I, it was when I was in the 60s, it was when I was in formative years and teenager and uh, turning 20 and playing baseball and, and the war in Vietnam. I mean, it was, it was a terribly complicated time in America. And um, it, it lives intensely in most people who were young and lived through it. I was fascinated to read about the, the writing process and creating the script and how uh, how much thought you put into the entrance of Crash Davis into the story and his, his first line that we get to see. Well, I believe that entrances matter in movies, that we remember them, you know. And uh, Nuke has a memorable first entrance in the locker room in <laughs> Flagrante uh, with his pants around his ankles. And... Uh, you know, uh, uh, Susan, Annie is narrating the story. I believe in the Church of Baseball is a memorable opening. And then Crash walks in, world weary, and says, I am the player to be named later. Well, guys don't like to brag about being the player to be named later. But when he said it was such a, a, a world weariness and a, a wry sense of humor that it's sort of like you realized this this is a smart guy uh, because he's, pl- he's using the line kind of against itself. And... Uh, so that's the three entrances. Now, Crash's speech that uh, you know, everybody who's seen the movie more than once can recite, I'm sure you've heard it a million times through the years, but but you write in the book that you thought it was maybe a, a little too much, a bit too self-conscious. Yeah, I, I still think it was overwritten, and, uh, you know, but it works and everybody loves it, so I'm happy to be wrong. But uh, yeah, I thought the writing showed, you try to hide the writing, not show off the writing. You wanted Costner for the part, and he loved the script, but I thought it was really great that uh, he decided he still had to do a, a bit of an audition for you. He did. He said, uh, um, well, I love the script, but I don't want to sign on to this until I pass the baseball test with you, because I, he said, I played in high school, and you, meaning me, played in professionally. So, I mean, there's not an actor in the world would, that would insist on a tryout after they had the part, except that's typical of Kevin. And so we went out to a, you know, out here in L.A. and San Fernando Valley, there's one of those, every city has one. There's a three miniature golf courses, a video arcade, and a batting cage. <laughs> and we played catch in the parking lot, and nobody knew who he was yet. They walked right by him. And we got in the cage, and he just started hitting line drives right-handed. And he looked beautiful up there. And he said, you know, I can do the same thing left-handed. And I thought, you're kidding me. So he switched in and stuff. I said, Kevin, and I got on the phone and said, hire this guy immediately. But you almost lost him before you began filming, right? Well, we had 30 days to get the movie made because his agents had committed to another movie unless we could make ours first. And it came down to it came down to hours, even minutes. And it's kind of a thriller part of the mm-hmm. book. That was a real struggle to find someone to play the part of Nuke. Uh, as you point out, it couldn't be just a young Crash Davis. They had to be very different characters and actors. Yeah. If, if you have a 20-year-old Kevin and a 36-year-old Kevin, why is the woman going to go with the boy? You should go with the man. So it had to be somebody very different physically and just uh, in every way, spiritually. And Tim walked in the door, and he was different than anybody I'd ever seen. I mean, six foot five. Uh, he's got that boyish grin. He's sweet. He's smarter than you think. Well, Tim's very smart, but... You know, he, he was able to in, to give Nuke, you know, dignity and just not play him dumb. He can play him a little dense and, and uh, uh, uneducated, 
but he's gaining wisdom. And by the end of the movie, he's teasing Crash. He's, you know, he's throwing the cliches out to the woman sports writer, uh, broadcaster, you know. So he's come a long ways in an hour and 45 minutes. You didn't know at the time that he had starred in uh, what's considered one of the big flops in Hollywood history, right? <laughs> yeah, I thought it was, I discovered him. And after I was too late to, to change, uh, it was revealed that his agent and he had failed to mention he was the star of Howard the Duck, which was <laughs> the biggest bomb in history to that day. <laughs> And uh, it didn't matter. Tim was great. You uh, you wanted Susan Sarandon. You knew she would be great for the part, but but she wasn't on what was known in the industry as the list. Can you explain that? Well, every studio or financing entity or today, you know, streaming companies, the Netflixes and HBO Maxes and all those, they have a list of actors and actresses that are there approved for the lead roles. Um, and they call it the list. And the problem is the list changes sometimes every week. Um, and, and so people fall in and out of favor with the corporation because of a movie that they came out in that didn't do good business or a bad, I don't know what. The list is mysterious. <laughs> it was mysterious that Susan wasn't on it, but I won't go into detail because it takes a while, but it's quite entertaining in the book. She flew from Italy where she was living with her two-year-old daughter and a nanny on her own dime to uh to push her way in the door and audition, and she got the part. And everybody in the cast was so perfect. How did you find Trey Wilson? Well, Trey had been in, uh, oh, what had he been in? Was he in uh, the Coen Brothers movie, I think, uh, Raising Arizona? I can't yes. remember. He was in something. Um, and he actually was my second choice. A wonderful actor named J.T. Walsh I thought was perfect. And, and Trey was also great, but he was very different. And then JT got a bigger offer on another movie, and he had to take the other movie because it was everybody had bigger offers than our because we didn't have much money. And so I was delighted to get Trey, who couldn't have been better. So uh, he sadly died of a heart attack a year later. He was on his way to do Miller's Crossing um, with the Coen Brothers in New Orleans, and uh, I think died on his way to the airport or something. He was. Very, very sad. He was a young man. And you, you mentioned there was a, there was an energy in Robert Wall's audition. You saw something there you liked, but but uh, you, the way you used him was terrific. That you, you you tried to wait until a little bit later in the shooting day when the energy would have been tamped down a little bit. Well, Robert Robert is great, and he's, he's you know he was a stand-up comic, and then he became a he was in Good Morning Vietnam and Hollywood Nights and all these movies, and. Um, he came in and gave the worst audition in the history of Hollywood. He was so over the top and so energized. It was like you thought he was on speed. He wasn't. That was just normal Robert. <clears throat> it was so bad that when he left the room, the casting director apologized for bringing him in. And I said, hire him. The casting director, who was already wary about a first-time director, said, no, 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 you can't. I said, I know it was the worst audition ever. What he did, you can't teach, but I can direct it. I can shape it. I can dial it down. I can work with it. He had, he's a baseball lunatic. I mean, he knows more about mm -hmm. baseball than anybody. He's in touch with half the GMs in the major leagues. He knows about big trades before they happen. Um, and he's a fabulous professional. And we became friends, and I put him in more movies. So uh, a bad audition doesn't isn't the end of the world. And you would give him the opportunity to try some things out, and it was in that process that he came up with the candlesticks line. 
he did. And that was four in the morning where he was starting to get worn down to the rest of us normally. And uh, yeah, the end of that scene, he said, can I play with, can I have him after we, I shoot the scripted line, could he have a take with another line? I said, sure. So as I'm shooting the scene, when the cameras are moving around and we're relighting, he would run different lines by me. And about four in the morning, he said, he said, the candlesticks line. And I said, don't change a thing. I'll give you a take. And we did my line in the script, which was ordinary. And then I did one for Robert. And as soon as he said, candlesticks always make a nice gift and find out where she's registered and all that. I knew it was going to be in the movie. And I knew I had an end to that scene, which I was very fun. <laughs> We're talking with Ron Shelton here on Downtown. Uh, you believe in the importance of rehearsals. Does that go back to your athletic background? Very much, yeah. I, I mean, you... <laughs> I think the whole thing is very athletic, making a movie. Uh, it's, it's a lot of preparation for, you know, the game. How many thousands of hours goes into preparation for a game that takes a few minutes or an hour, you know? And uh, I think it's the same. I mean, you, actors, I, I love audition. You know, Tommy Lee Jones, who I've worked with, calls me coach and calls auditions. I mean, calls, calls rehearsal practice. Coach, let's go get some practice. And I, I love that idea because it's where you get to try out good ideas, bad ideas. You see what works. Um, when you show up ready to work on the day of shooting, you, you know the script. you got a couple of fresh ideas saved up. And uh, it, it's very athletic. The game starts, you know, the first pitch, uh, the tip of the, of the basketball, the kickoff. And now all the preparation is behind you. It's all intuition and talent. The players had to make the baseball look real, and that's one of the keys to the success of the movie. And one of the guys partially responsible for that, we're up here in Red Sox country, was uh, one-time Red Sox manager Grady Little. Grady Little, who I quite like, was the manager of the actual Durham Bulls. And by the way, not long before, it was a guy named Brian Snitker. Yeah. Uh, who, you know, if he wins one more, he'll be in the Hall of Fame. And... Uh, um, so, and I know Brian and, and Grady had just finished the season with the Durham Bulls, you know, which was low A ball at the mm. time. Now it's triple A, but it was low A. And we said, Grady, we'll pay you a couple more months. Just, we need you to find ball players and run a baseball camp. And we'll put our actors into the camp as well. But we, we need pitchers ready to throw and fielders and catchers. So he can find like former high school and college guys and also a lot of minor leaguers in the area who had nothing to do for two months. <laughs> so that was all Grady. And then of course he goes to the Red Sox, wins 94 games. He goes to the Dodgers, wins 90 something games. He's like averages 90 something games in four years and he's out. And uh, I've always defended him keeping Pedro in by the way, which I think I do in the book because he had a weak bullpen. And what people forget is that, the hits off of Pedro were cheap, broken bat flares. I mean, he didn't give up line drives. It was just little donks. It was mm -hmm. sort of like the famous collapse, you know, in, in Buckner. Uh, in Chiraldi and all those guys, Stan, Steamer, Stanley Steamer, they didn't give up ropes. They were dunks. What, and, did the, uh, uh, what did the addition of Max Patkin do for the film? Well, I wrote him into the script because I love Max because I, I got to know him in the minors. I didn't really know him, but I got to see him a lot. I had a beer with him one night on a rainout, and uh, uh, I just thought he was funny. Most of the players thought he was like corny. And I, 
I love those physical humor comic guys and vaudeville really. And uh, so, you know, so I chased him down and said, Mac, you're gonna, uh, Max, you're going to be in the movie. You show up in Durham. And he was a joy, uh, a joy to let him get a paycheck. And when we had the press uh, junket in LA, it was at a very fancy hotel where the president stayed in the century city. And the studio said, I could stay in the presidential suite. I said, I live in LA. I don't need to stay in the hotel. I said, give it to Max Patkin. So we flew Max out. He almost fainted and he flew his brother out. So Max and his brother could stay in the presidential suite during the press junket in LA. That's wonderful. Uh, you, you quote John Houston in the book that uh, making a movie is like going to war and you had your share of battles and they're, they're well recounted in the book. The studio wanted to replace Tim Robbins Amazingly, they didn't think Susan Sarandon looked good. And then, I, worst of all, from my perspective, they hated the meeting at the mound. Yeah, they didn't think the movie was funny. And they didn't think it was romantic. They didn't think it was sexy. And they said, nobody will believe Susan Sarandon would end up in bed with Tim Robbins, to which I say, I'm the godfather of their firstborn <laughs> son. So, yeah, the meeting at the mound, I loved from the beginning. It, it, we edited it quickly and easily. There was never a change. They kept saying it wasn't funny. Now, how do you argue about funny? And so it came down to a screening with the audience. And the audience, every audience picked it as their favorite scene in the movie. So that's why it stayed. Although, as you, you talk about in the book, the test audiences reacted and responded to the film, but but didn't give it those top scores. But uh, Mike Medavoy decided to, I guess, go with his gut or go what he uh, with what he saw firsthand and, and go ahead with the film. Mike Medavoy was the head of the studio, and though he had some issues while we were shooting it, once he saw it finished, he totally got behind it. And um, yeah, we I, to this day, I wrote a chapter trying to figure out why we didn't get better test scores. In, in my business, you want to get 90% what they call excellent or very good, the top two categories. 80s, you're okay. 70s, you're trying to work them up with edits into the 80s. We, got, we never got out of the 50s. And... Um, uh, I, I don't know why. I, I really don't know why, uh, because once we got in the theater, audiences laughed and, and cheered. So it's one of the mysteries. In the script, uh, you have a, a backstory, a, a monologue from Annie, kind of explaining how she got to where she was at that point in her life. You eventually had to cut that and let it go. Why was that the right move to make for the film? Because the movie played better without my favorite scene and everybody's favorite <laughs> scene. And, um, I, I'm not sure why. Well, I wrote a whole chapter examining why. Um, I love the scene. Everybody loved the scene. Susan would have got an Oscar if the scene was in there. But the editor and I determined that for some reason the movie was slowing down for the scene. And I finally came to the, I, I believe that there was such intimacy between the two characters, just talking in a bar in the daytime, sharing that, it, it, you know, the movie was sort of over before they ended up, you know, in bed together or anything. It was it was uh, the kind of intimacy that would be shared after you were really getting to know somebody, not before. That was my theory anyway, and I mm. don't have any others, but uh, the movie played better without it. And then you, you shifted a key scene late in the film from a brothel to the pool hall, and that seemed to make a big difference. Yeah, I was, I was an idiot for writing a scene in a brothel. Uh, in a romantic comedy. I mean, like, come on. Um, but I, I, I reshot it in a pool hall. I didn't change a word of dialogue. 
But now Crash was playing pool, not playing piano in a, in a brothel. So uh, it was quite remarkable that I could reshoot a scene without changing the word of it and just change the location. Right. Made a huge, huge difference. Huge difference. Do you think if the film had been set in the major leagues that it would have had the same appeal? Nope. It wouldn't because, you know, uh, these guys, it's more interesting to watch guys struggling with their dreams to make it mm. than after they've made it. Now, you can make a movie about a major leaguer, although I don't know what that, I, I never made it past AAA. Um, but you're dealing, you're dealing with a whole different thing. You're dealing with a corporate world. I mean, it's very corporate major league sports now. Mm. You know, um, you're, you're flying on charters to five-star hotels. Uh, there's tremendous pressure, but um, it's not as much fun. Well, and you you did such a great job of capturing the the grittiness. I think what you call the earthiness of the minor leagues, and and that that sometimes would would make the production crew uh, a little bit concerned. Uh, the great story, and I'll let people read about it in the book of the the bus with the hat. But ultimately, it paid off with a realism that I don't think you would otherwise have. Right, I did not want the dugouts to be lit like they're on a Hollywood stage. I didn't want the bus to be lit like it was on a Hollywood stage. Um, the minor league parks, the lights were so bad we could hardly get a light meter reading on the camera. We had to clean out the lights and bring in extra lights. But it feels real. Um, when Crash goes out to the mound, it's all handheld. Um, the, the, the field in Durham was yellow because it was it was September, October, November. We have to keep painting up green, and it still looked terrible. Um, and that's exact. It looked exactly the movie looks the way I wanted it to look. And you write in the book that the movie is ultimately about uh, about loving something more than it loves you back. And, and you don't have to be a baseball fan to be able to relate to that. Yeah, that I think everybody, uh, you know, of any gender or age can, has loved something, someone, you know, a job, a person, a passion more than they've got it back from that thing. And that's Crash. And I think that's what makes it universal, if anything does. The book is called The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham. Home runs, bad calls, crazy fights, big swings, and a hit. Uh, I love the movie, and I sure did love reading about everything you went through to make what's become a classic of cinema. Ron Shelton, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Rich. My pleasure. Well, what a fun conversation that was. Uh, Ron Shelton talking about Bull Durham with us. His new book, The Church of Baseball. We'll take a break for a word from Cross Insurance. And when we return, ESPN journalist Jason Reed on his book, The Rise of the Black Quarterback, next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. A little music from the Bull Durham soundtrack here. Thanks again to Ron Shelton 
for visiting with us. Up next on the program, ESPN journalist Jason Reed has written his first book, a wonderfully researched and a very thought-provoking book called Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America. Our conversation with Jason Reed on Downtown. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Appreciate you being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, uh, what a wonderful book. It's a, a terrific look at... Uh, I think an important issue, not just in sports, uh, but here in America. And I like the way you've set the book up in, in starting with 2019. Uh, can you explain why that was such a, a big year for the NFL and for black quarterbacks in particular? Yeah, you, quarterback is the most important position in team sports. And there had never been more superstar black quarterbacks playing in the league. And going into that year, I thought that these guys may have unprecedented seasons and they did and it was the actually the the hundredth season anniversary of the nfl and to have these black players these black quarterbacks excel like they had never excelled before this group that had been so marginalized throughout league history i thought that that the, the symbolism of that was really important the book is so well researched and i learned an awful lot i knew very little of the story of fritz pollard senior can you talk a bit about him yeah, Fritz Pollard was actually the first black superstar, black quarterback, and black coach in NFL history. He, he entered the league, you know, d- during its, its founding when it was in its infancy, and he was a superstar. He had a great rivalry with uh, the, the great Native American athlete Jim Thorpe, who was the star of the 1912 Olympics, and Jim Thorpe you know, was one of the early pioneers of the NFL. And Fritz Pollard endured so much racism, and endured so much just hardship as a pioneer in the game. You know, the, the, again, the first black star, first black head coach, and first black quarterback, he lined up at quarterback. It's not quarterback as we know it today, but still, he was the first one. And just to see how, how he persevered and, and, and then the, 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 the path that he lit for others, I, it, was, it was truly inspiring to me while I was researching and reporting the book. And I was uh, also surprised to see that one of his teammates for a while was the great Paul Robeson. Yeah, Paul Robeson and, and uh, Chris Pollard, they were friends. They, they, they were friends in college. Robeson attended Rutgers, uh, and Chris Pollard attended Brown, and, and they were both stars in college, and they were friends. And, you know, Robeson, I, I don't know if a lot of people know that, that, that Paul Robeson, uh, the great actor and, 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 uh, and, and singer, he also was an NFL player at one point, and he was a college football star. Why did the NFL enact their ban on black players? Well, you know, there's no written documentation, or at least no written documentation has been uncovered explaining what the thinking was. It, it, from what, what we know, it, it, it looks like it was just a so-called gentleman's agreement. And you got to remember, it was the 1930s, the, the Depression, and you know the Great Depression in America, and the feeling was that well, why are we taking these jobs and giving them to black men? We're giving them to white. Also, the league wanted to get away from black players. Uh, Red Grange, the, the the great star uh, at Illinois, came into the league, and the league wanted to market the game toward white people. They really didn't want to court black fans. So the combination of the Depression, the Great Depression, the emergence of Red Grange, you see black players disappear from the game for 12 years. And what role did Paul Brown play in reintegrating professional football? Well, Paul Brown is, is such an innovator. You can't talk about the history of professional football in this country without talking about Paul Brown. So 
Paul Brown, it, it was in a league. Uh, the Browns eventually came into the NFL, but they were, they were in a different league. Mm. And in 1946, Paul Brown brought on two black players, uh, Marion Motley and Bill Willis, and they were among they were two of the first four black players to reintegrate major professional football in America. Uh, Paul Brown also had had a a system of relaying plays into the game with 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 guards, uh, offensive linemen. They were called messenger guards, and he had a, a, a prominent black guard who was involved with with relaying the plays into the game and. Because of that, all of a sudden, black play, black offensive linemen. Well, now they were looked at a little differently because if Paul Brown would use a black offensive lineman to be one of his "quote unquote" messenger guards, well, maybe black players were a little smarter than a lot of people thought at the time. We're talking with Jason Reed about his terrific new book, "Rise of the Black Quarterback." what it means for America. I think one of the most powerful chapters in the book is one entitled The Thinking Positions. And uh, John Wooten is such a, a compelling character in your book here. He says it's quite simply that ownership and coaches, too, didn't think that we were smart enough to play what were known as those thinking positions. Yeah, the up-the-middle positions, the, the center on the offensive line, and that, that's the center is, you know, the quarterback of the offensive line because he has to make the line adjustment call, or at least he helps in that. Uh, middle linebacker. Middle linebacker traditionally makes the defensive play call. He's the quarterback of the defense. And, you know, John Wooten, and, and I'm glad you brought John's name, John was one of those messenger guards who relayed the plays into the quarterback that Paul Brown wanted to run. So, yeah, the, the feeling just was that black men were not smart enough, capable enough talented enough to play those up-the-middle positions around which everything else revolves. So, yeah, it's, it's just, just flat-out racism. Well, if if he wasn't a real character in football history, someone would have to make him up because it's such a great name. Can you talk a little bit about pioneer Willie Thrower? Yeah, Willie Thrower, I, I love it. The, the greatest quarterback name ever, Willie <laughs> Thrower. You know, he, play, he plays at Michigan State. He's a backup there. He gets onto the Bears roster. This is when George Papa Bear Hallis, uh, the late uh, one of the founding owners of the NFL, um, was running the team on a day-to-day basis as a coach. Uh, the, the, the starting quarterback was having a, a bad game, apparently. And um, what you know, what we've learned from history, what we can glean from that is that we don't know exactly what George Hallis was thinking was, but we can glean that he just probably figured he'd throw Willie Throw in there for and see what could happen for a couple of plays. Well, Willie Thrower actually, you know, gets in the game. He's the first black quarterback to get into the game in the NFL. And he actually, you know, has a couple of moments, you know, completes some passes. Um, but he never gets another opportunity. And then he's out of the NFL shortly thereafter. And this was in the 1950s when black men were just not allowed to play quarterback. One of the pioneers, too, uh, passed away uh, just recently. Can you talk a bit about Marlon Briscoe? Yeah, Marlon Briscoe, you know, very sad about his passing. Marlon gave me a lot of time for the book and you know he 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 was the first black quarterback of the modern era he played for the denver broncos when, when they were in the old afl before the broncos came to the nfl and you know marlin is a not a big guy he wasn't a big guy in terms of you know the, the prototypical quarterback size marlin was like five nine 175 177 pounds something like that and he was a great quarterback at the university of omaha nebraska and back in the late 60s, black men were not drafted to play quarterback. The understanding was if the league was going to draft you, you would have to change position. Mm. 
And sure enough, the the Denver Broncos drafted Marlon to play cornerback, but he, you know, in a twist, he tells them, I'm not going to sign unless you give me a tryout at quarterback. They give him a tryout, but the thing was rigged. They were never going to give him a job. Well, wouldn't you know it, the the starter gets hurt. Other players are affected. The team's having a horrible year, so they throw him out there. He has a great season. Since the Broncos' rookie record 14 touchdown passes, finishes high in the AFL rookie of the year voting, and they just simply take the job away from him because he's black. There's, I mean, and you know, I know when people hear something like that, well, no, there have to be other reasons. People think not in 1968. They simply took the job because they didn't want a black man to play quarterback moving forward. And those barriers <laughs> did not go away for a while, well into the 1970s. And, and one of the people affected by it was the great uh, coach, Tony Dungy, who had been an outstanding quarterback at the University of Minnesota, but didn't get that opportunity in the NFL. Yeah, Tony Dungy goes goes to the NFL, and he, he he's a defensive back for the for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and then goes on after that to have a great coaching career, obviously. But yeah, you know, they just that it's not to say that every black man who played quarterback in college would have definitely made uh, made it to the NFL as a quarterback and been a successful quarterback. But the thing was, the practice was that the black players were just not allowed to play the position. At that point, I mean, in, 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 the, in the 60s, 70s, even into the early 80s, it's really not until the late 1980s, early 1990s, when you start to see black quarterbacks become not an oddity anymore. And one of the quarterbacks who certainly proved that black quarterbacks could win was James Harris. Oh, James Shaq Harris. You know, James uh, gave me a lot of time for the book, and I'm so appreciative. He's also been a, a great person for me to talk to through the years. Uh, first black quarterback to start in a playoff game. Uh, first black quarterback to start a season opener. Um, you know, made the Pro Bowl. James was one of those pioneers, and it's interesting. Doug Williams, who was like James Harrison's little brother, uh, they both played at, at Grambling University under the legendary Eddie Robinson. At Grambling is a historically black college and university, and and Doug always tells me that. You know, people talk to him about being a pioneer because Doug Williams was the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl in the game's MVP award. But he always tells me, James Shaq Harris is the pioneer because because Doug Williams will tell you he stood on James Shaq Harris's shoulders. Now, when it comes to the rise of black quarterbacks, did the situation involving Colin Kaepernick set things back a little bit? Well, no, I wouldn't say it set things back because the league, even when Colin Kaepernick took his uh, – decided to, to draw attention to systemic oppression and police brutality uh, by kneeling. Even by that point, things had changed to the point where teams could no longer just exclude black men from playing the quarterback because the money got so big in the NFL and the pressure to win on general managers, general managers and coaches got so big that they could not just say, we're not going to take black quarterbacks. And not all black quarterbacks decided to kneel uh, during the national anthem, obviously, to to shine a light on these things. So the Kaepernick situation, it didn't, it didn't cast a shadow over all black quarterbacks, but it did put Colin Kaepernick in a position where it cost him his career because he decided to stand on principle. And of course the irony is that it was only in recent years that players even came out of the locker room for the national anthem. And only then because of an agreement with the NFL and the defense department that, that paid the league millions of dollars to use it as a promotional tool. Yeah, you know, I always find it interesting when people want to say that, you know, the, 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 the politics and, uh, you know, 
issues about government and, and propaganda don't have a place in, in sports. They've always been in sports. Mm. We just, it's just it's what you choose to see. Now, you know, the situation you brought up, you're 100% correct in that. It's, but many people want sports to be escapism, and I totally get that. But what you have in the NFL with the relationship with the, with, with the military and the government, like these are things that, that have been present, and all Kaepernick did was shine a light on something else. And, and as you point out in the book, uh, for Donald Trump, those protests were a gift. Oh, my goodness. I mean, when, you know, when you talk about what the former president wanted to do in, in, in terms of, you know, those, uh, those, those cultural war issues, um, it, 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 uh, he obviously seized on that. And he also angered many players in the NBA and the NFL. Um, and, and brought them together. So, yeah, it was an issue that, that he definitely used to uh, unite his supporters, but it also united people who were opposed to him as well. Jason, do you think that NFL fans are perhaps, as a group, more inclined to buy into some of the old stereotypes? Well, you know, I, with, the, with, the Colin, with the Colin Kaepernick situation, I, I, I'm going to answer it in, in kind of the same way that I would um, with that. I think it largely falls along racial lines. Polling during the Kaepernick situation when, when he was ignited the protest movement in the NFL, it, it, it largely fell along racial lines. And generally speaking, black people supported what he was doing. And generally speaking, white people did not. So I think that there, you know, black people are NFL fans, too. And a lot of times in this discussion, when we talk about NFL fans, it, 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 the, the, the tendency is to only think of, to frame it from a position of generally speaking, white NFL mm. fans. So, again, I think it falls largely along racial lines. Uh, you say, quite simply, that Patrick Mahomes is the best black quarterback in NFL history, but at some point we may, may just say best quarterback in NFL history. How has he changed the perception of black QBs? Well, what, what Patrick Mahomes has done and what he is, he, he represents everything the pioneers thought could one day be achieved by a black quarterback. Because what Doug Williams and James Shaq Harris and Warren Moon will tell us, will tell you, and which they told me for the book, is that they always thought that if black quarterbacks had an opportunity to just compete for the position, one of them one day would rise up to be the best quarterback in the NFL. And there was a two-year stretch there, uh, 19, excuse me, 19, 2018, 2019, where Patrick Mahomes was unquestionably the number one player in the league. He, he won the NFL MVP award as a first-year starter after the 2018 season. He won the Super Bowl trophy and the Super Bowl MVP award at, uh, in, after the 2019 season. And right now, he's either the first, either the best quarterback or the second best quarterback or the third. He's definitely in the top three or four quarterbacks right now. But back then, for those two years, he was unquestionably the best quarterback in the league, regardless of race. And the platform that he had and, and the influence that he had, he he pushed the league forward on these social justice uh, matters because it was important to him. We have a lot of black quarterbacks these days, but as you point out in the epilogue to the book, still very few black coaches out there. The whole Brian Flores situation uh, remains to be seen. Uh, what comes of that? What's the future for black coaches and black executives in the league? Well, that's the next frontier. You know, the black quarterbacks for many for a very long time, that was the frontier for, for black people to prove within the league that, that the black man could thrive as a quarterback at the most important position in the NFL, the most important position in team sports. The next frontier is for 
more black coaches to become in positions of influence in the league, to become head coaches, more black executives to become to, to rise up to the level of general manager, and for those people to win, and win in a manner where it's no longer questioned that those executives and those coaches belong at the top of the game. So the subtitle of your book is What It Means for America. So uh, I'll ask you, uh, what does the rise of the black quarterback mean? Well, quarterback is a uniquely American leadership position. When, when you in corporate America, the person leading a big project for a company, he's the quarterback of the project. If you're going for a medical procedure, your doctor is the quarterback. He's the one who has to get you through this, this big thing. So as we see black men being excluded from the quarterback position in the NFL, it says something in, 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 a, very, in a very offensive manner about the ability of black men and black people to achieve excellence. So now that we have the rise of the black quarterback, we see that that also coincides with the rise of black people in America in, this, in, in, in the last century and this century. You have a black president. We've had a black president. We've had black captains of industry. We've had uh, black people in many walks of life rise to positions that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, they would not have even been able to attempt to, to occupy. So the rise of the black quarterback coincides with the rise of black people in America. And, and foremost, what it shows is, is that when people are given opportunities, when people of color are given opportunities, not everyone will succeed, but enough will succeed to show that, hey, opportunity was all that was required. Well, it's a tremendously well-researched and thought-provoking book, Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America. Jason, thank you so much for making time for us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Jason Reed talking about his new book, Rise of the Black Quarterback. Our thanks to Jason, thanks to Ron Shelton, and thanks to you for being with us this week on the podcast. We'll see you next time right here on Downtown.